everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Let's Chat Markets, your favorite dairy podcast designed to deliver a quick recap of some of the key fundamentals that took place this past week. However, we have a bonus episode for you today to discuss a very hot topic in agriculture markets. We have tracked and discussed these issues in our analysis as well as on the podcast, but never with an expert in the industry. Today, I'm sitting down with Emily Lavasser, co-founder of Waypost Advisors, to discuss all the supply chain intricacies that are on our radar at present and especially as the holiday season nears. Waypost Advisors is a small supply chain and finance consulting firm based out of Minneapolis that offers creative resourcing solutions for world-class supply chain and finance expertise to small and mid-market manufacturing and distribution companies. While that is my little recap, I'm quite sure you'd prefer to hear from Emily herself. Emily, thank you so much for coming on with us today. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for having me. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be here today. Yeah, it would be great if you could just share a little bit about your background, as well as the company that you and your co-founder started rather recently. Sure. I have 17 years in supply chain experience, uh, U.S. domestic and international 14 of those years were with Cargill in agriculture, food ingredient manufacturing, and distribution. I've held execution roles all the way from creating documentation for export container shipments through to global container procurement, supply chain planning, forecasting, inventory management, production and warehouse capacity modeling and management, other transportation like truck and rail and warehousing, as well as a two-year stint in a production facility in a continuous improvement role. I've had roles all the way up to managing a 200-person supply chain and customer service team for a $6 billion business in Cargill. I left Cargill about two years ago, just looking for a, a different twist on my employment experience and had the fortune of connecting with my co-founder on Waypost Advisors. Um, what I really love about supply chain is that it's always a challenging puzzle with logic and math that can be applied for a solution, but with the twist of the people dynamics that keep it just a little more interesting. I also really like the gratification of problem solving, and there are always problems to overcome in supply chain. Waypost was founded in March of 2020 by my partner and initially focused on finance and commercial strategy. It became apparent pretty quickly at that point in time that supply chain was immediately an area of need. And um, we started to build out that part of the business when I joined later in 2020 as a co-founder and a co-owner. Our tagline is, we don't really just want to give you a pretty PowerPoint. We actually want to become an executing member of your business that helps your team and your company accomplish your goals. Our advisors have 15 to 30 years of experience in execution and leadership roles, and we know how to get this stuff done because we've done it before. We focus on the knowledge transfer to ensure a successful and sustainable state after we leave. That's a little bit about myself and Waypost. Thank you for that. It sounds like you really set up your customers for success as well as advising them on those key areas. And if there is one thing people need right now, it's a supply chain expert to help their business run smoothly. Dairy markets have, of course, been volatile, but shipping rates, container shortages, rail strikes, the supply chain has been such a mess. 
What's the current state of transportation here in the U.S. from trucking to rail? Is there anything that sticks out most as being a huge challenge right now, or perhaps the situation is easing? You tell me. Yeah, great question, Alyssa. Thanks. I think I'll start actually with international container dynamics and with a slight focus on U.S. dynamics as well. We are seeing a drop in congestion in ports around the U.S. and around the world in general. That's a gross generalization. We One of the things that we track are bookings, container bookings from Asia to the U.S., and they are down considerably versus the last 12 months, which means that we're seeing generally that correlates to somewhat of a pullback in demand. Now, with that being said, there are a couple of other dynamics at play with container freight. One of them being, as I believe a lot of importers are experiencing, some of the congestion from the West Coast LA Long Beach ports has shifted over to East Coast ports. So we are seeing some delays in congestion in Savannah, Charleston, a little bit in New York, New Jersey over the average. But where we're actually really starting to see some bigger problems emerge, particularly in the U.S., is that because demand has pulled back rather significantly in the last six months for consumer goods, we're finding two problems are arising. First and foremost, inland container ports, so ports like Kansas City, Chicago, Minneapolis, are starting to become congested. And the turn time on containers has extended from an average of 20 days in May, 20 days in May of 2022, 10 days in 2019. As of last week, it was up to 33 days of a turn time. And what's happening here is warehouses are quite congested. So it's taking longer to unload containers. And because inventory isn't turning as quickly because demand is down, there isn't space in warehouses. So the receivers are taking containers, parking them at warehouses until they can unload them. What that means is that there's less containers that are heading back around the world, but more critically in the U.S. is there are fewer chassis to carry the containers from container yards to their end destinations. Uh, Charlotte-based company Direct Chassis Link gave a figure last week that it's now taking them 26,000 more chassis to move 11% fewer shipments because those shipments are sitting at warehouses for so much longer. I do want to make some comments about non-U.S. dynamics in containers. Uh, There is an issue with strikes in Felixstowe and Germany which is causing some trickle-down effects, of course, to ports like Rotterdam and Le Havre in France. They're not able to, they're not able to move the containers as efficiently from Felixstowe and the German ports. And so it is causing congestion because ships are eliminating calls to those ports and routing to Rotterdam and Le Havre, which is causing congestion. So there are some dynamic, some shipping dynamic challenges in the European ports. The other one is China. So I had done some research on container shipping dynamics through China and why I believe we will continue to see disruption for potentially 12 to 36 months to come in container shipments. That's a long time. It's a long time. It's a long time. But when you look at these numbers, Alyssa, it starts to make a little bit of sense with the dynamics we're seeing. So 
30% of the volume of the world's ocean, ocean shipments pass through the South China Sea, which means that they have some sort of interaction with Chinese ports. China has seven of the world's top 10 container ports by container volume, 70% of the top 10 container ports, and about 400 smaller container ports as well. Where this is really problematic is with China's current zero COVID policy and ongoing. So that zero COVID policy is expected to continue for the foreseeable future. While it is a strong campaign position for China's current administration, it's also expected that that administration will continue and that that zero COVID policy will continue as well as there is some popular support from the population in China. So as a little anecdotal example, I have a friend who lived in a city named Songyuan, which is a small Chinese city of 3 million people. And when they would have two confirmed cases of COVID in a city of 3 million, the city would go on lockdown to the point of armed guards being stationed outside of apartment doors so that people couldn't leave. When you think of that in terms of a giant port city and all of the throughput that goes through, you can easily start to see how that becomes such a problem with people not able to get to, the workers not able to get to the ports, with supplies not able to move around. And so my concern is that we're going to continue to see interruptions to the container dynamics just simply because of China's zero COVID policy. Yeah. Wow. That's um, it's really been impacting some dairy demand as well. So that makes sense to us. So it sounds like congestion is still a bit of an issue. I have heard in my community of dairy contacts, and you mentioned this a bit ago, but also elsewhere that warehouse spacing is dwindling. Is that still the case today? Absolutely. The dry storage and refrigerator storage warehousing is just spilling at the seams, if you will. I just had a conversation yesterday with a real estate development group that is just focused on building new warehousing and they're just filled to the gills with, with potential opportunities. So part of what's driving this dynamic, particularly on the dry storage time, is this dynamic I mentioned around demand having dropped with inflation being what it is, with interest rates, consumer buying patterns are concerned and so they're down. So a lot of these inbound consumer good materials that are now kind of breaking loose in the supply chains are starting to come to roost in the terms of oversupply. And so all of this inventory is spilling into warehousing space, and it's just a scramble to find warehousing space anywhere, but particularly around ports, inland ports, and large distribution areas. The other thing that I will just mention is around trucking in the U.S. market. And the, the freight rates are stabilizing, but they're still expensive. I know we had chatted about that, Alyssa, that yes, while the truck markets, both in less than truckload, full truckload, and reefer are stabilizing back nearer to five-year trends, the rates are still more expensive because it is more difficult to find drivers. And so this is going to build into commentary around labor to tie back to warehousing. It's still difficult to find drivers, particularly for lanes where a driver can't be home within the same working day. So long haul trucking is very difficult to find drivers. And so the load to truck ratio on those long haul trucks is still high. And so the freight rates are still high, although they are fluctuating 
fluctuating and we are starting to see fuel come back down, of course. Yeah. So there's another buzzword, the labor problem. Um, this seems to be problematic in many sectors, but the physical aspect that's going into hauling loads or stacking boxes, it's gotten increasingly difficult to fill those roles, hasn't it? I saw just the other day that the gig economy, so becoming an Uber driver or being able to turn to Grubhub or grocery delivery is hurting the warehouse jobs quite a bit. I would completely agree. I think that between warehouse jobs and other, so a great recent example not related to warehousing is the recently averted rail strike in the US, thank goodness, um, which would have been a major, major problem. 30% of US freight moves on railroads <laughs> and it's very difficult to move from railroad to truck at the last minute. One of the biggest dynamics that was in the labor dispute and the contract negotiation is more freedom for the workers of railroads, being able to take more time off and even being able to take it unpaid, but just being able to take the time off. What that tells me is that people are really much more interested today in having jobs that are flexible to their needs rather than necessarily on the dollar signs. The dollar signs are important, but to your point, Alyssa, you have a lot of options in this day and age around the gig economy that give you a lot of freedom to live the way you want. Another dynamic that we see is Amazon. Amazon comes into markets and builds large warehouses and needs a lot of workers and they pay well. So we actually even see that not only in the warehouse space, but also in manufacturing. When, where, when Amazon plops a warehouse down near manufacturing area, there can be an attrition of manufacturing workers because they can make more money running packages around at, at Amazon. So it, it's real. Oh, super interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Sounds like we aren't out of the clear yet then with all these challenges. Are you concerned then given the lack of labor about the holiday season? Should we be concerned about lagging lead times or is this different than the empty shelves we saw during the peak of the pandemic? <laughs> Great question. My forecast, and you'll have to hold me accountable to whether this happens, Alyssa, but my forecast is that in general, particularly around non-food consumer goods, we are probably going to have more inventory. The shelves are going to be more stocked and maybe at slightly better pricing than we did the last two years, of course. Two things happened. Lead times extended hugely in 20 and certainly 2021. So importers of consumer goods brought their goods in much, much earlier than they normally do, three to six months in advance of, of normally when they would bring it in for the holiday season. So a lot of these goods are already here on the ground in the U.S. somewhere, whether they're in a warehouse or they're already on the shelves in a distribution center, could be either. So I'm not super concerned about there being congestion, additional congestion from holiday stocking in that space. Where it might get interesting is labor at the stores, for example, and people to actually pack the shelves themselves. That may end up being the constraint on that labor side to keep the empty shelves filled with whatever's in the back of the store to be sold. From a food perspective, particularly around perishable goods, stores tend to give priority to perishable goods. They're not always 
fabulous at maintaining that turn time and that inventory management on the shelves. But because of the high cost of perishable goods and because of the low shelf lives, they do pay more attention to that. Non-perishable goods, canned goods, dry goods with longer shelf lives, maybe a year or two, they're still in the food shelves, which tend to turn more quickly than maybe some other goods. But I do think that no matter where food suppliers are looking, they should really be monitoring inventories closely to the extent that they can, both what's in their warehouses and in their inventory plans and what their retailers are potentially doing with their inventory management at the stores. All right. So it sounds like I could do my last minute Christmas shopping like I always do, potentially. I think you're going to be in much better position to do last minute Christmas shopping this year, Alyssa. <laughs> oh, wonderful. And, you know, another thing to consider from a supplier or manufacturer's perspective that we're recommending to clients and on our, our article boards is really to try not to be single sourced. One of the high risks in supply chain stability is your sources. And if there is a disruption to your source, that can really leave you in a problem and a scramble to find alternative ingredients or alternative resources. So if you are able to find more than one source for your materials, it could be for food ingredients, it could be for packaging materials, it really puts you in a better position to both test the pricing and the strength of the market, as well as have alternative solutions should your primary supplier not be able to deliver. Now, it's not always possible to have more than one supplier especially in cases where you have a very specialized ingredient or a specialized material, or in cases where you just simply don't have the volume necessary to get leverage with, with suppliers if you split the volume between multiples. In those cases, we always recommend doing some sort of assessment of the criticality of the material. If you're not able to get the material on time, if you have a quality issue that renders 25% of your shipment unusable, what's the impact to your business? Is your plant down for a day? Are you missing out on demand? Those would be critical materials for which we would then recommend managing the relationship with that supplier strategically. So what does it mean exactly to manage a supplier strategically? Great question, Alyssa. And what that means is really getting much more intimate, for lack of a better term, with your supplier, making sure that you're sharing information that's really critical for them to know. They need to understand what part of their portfolio you represent. Are you a critical customer for them? Are they a critical supplier for you? And I'll give you an example. They may be a critical supplier. If you don't get your delivery in full within three days of when you expected it, your plant may be down. But you may be only a small part of your supplier's portfolio. And if there is a case where they're capacity constrained, you may be the first customer on their slate that doesn't get their shipment. If you can start to tease out those types of dynamics in the relationship, it becomes much more powerful and much more valuable in the way a contract is written and negotiated to ensure that you're being treated fairly in terms of the level of service and that the pricing that you're paying is both predictable and relevant to the level of service that you require. 
that's great advice, Emily. Is there anything else that companies should be aware of? You know, the other thing that I'm seeing that's relatively new, Alyssa, I don't think the concept is new, but it's starting to become much, much, much more relevant in this day and age is in supply chain planning, in particular demand planning and forecasting, the standard way of doing forecasting, the way an ERP system works is to use order history, past shipment history, apply some statistical modeling that have the right parameters to represent the demand and then project a future state. Well, with these last two years, I think one of our greatest learnings is that history is not the best predictor of the future anymore. And what it has done is it has rendered these forecasting capabilities a little bit more obsolete. I think having some forecasting in some cases is better than others, but not always. There have been studies where I've seen that many companies would be better off just doing no demand planning at all than by applying statistical models because their business is so much more variable into the future than it was in the past. So I think the cautionary tale I would give there is there's a lot of talk of pivoting more to what's called demand sensing, which is less this historical and statistical analysis and more an integration of the future looking inputs, really getting inputs from your sales and marketing teams on what they're seeing on the ground. What are the customers actually saying? What are they desiring? What are your customers saying about their customers and the demand from their customers? Also being able to integrate more predictive type data sets that might correlate consumer demand to weather patterns or political sentiment or sports events. It could be any of those things. I think one of my favorite examples is a medical device client that we work with that does orthopedic boots and knee braces and such things. As you might imagine, they always see a huge peak in demand in the mountain states during the winter. Kind of makes sense, right? <laughs> so they have learned to keep more of an eye on snow and weather patterns in the Rockies because the more people ski and snowboard, the more that they need knee braces and wrist guards. Um, I would be one of those people. I have been there myself when I accidentally went down a black diamond and meant to stay on the greens. So, oh no, I've been there. Yeah. Well, how fascinating. No wonder you're so busy. Um, I can imagine you add incredible value to your customers as someone that is so focused on how to mitigate these challenges. You know, it kind of reminds me of some of the strategies we use to help our customers avoid being exposed to too much risk. Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share? Thanks again, Alyssa, for this opportunity. And I think that my final thoughts are really to challenge the listeners to how they convey information up and down the ranks in their company. How do they find out, for example, from customer service who may be in touch with their customers every single day, how do they tease out that customer intel from customer service and account managers and bring that up through the organization to a level where trends can be plucked out and used for future forward planning? And then how does that planning convey back to the supply chain and operations teams and their execution so that they have a great chance of being able to execute to a future forward plan rather than being caught on their heels? Those are really my thought-provoking comments for today. And I've really enjoyed the conversation with you today, Alyssa. Thank you.
Yeah. Awesome. Thanks again, Emily. I learned a lot today and certainly look forward to continuing this conversation in the near future. We really appreciate your time. Anytime. Happy to be here. Cheers. Be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And if you're interested in receiving more information, as well as our analysis, please visit highgrounddairy.com to request a free 30-day trial today. Futures and options trading involves substantial risk and is not suitable for all investors.